Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Maniac, an Oscar and Grammy-nominated number one pop hit recorded by Michael Cimbello and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Dennis McCoskey. In part two, we'll talk with Dennis about two distinct phases of his career as both a chart-topping pop and country songwriter. But first, in part one, we'll talk about which artists carry their wallet on stage and why you should totally know what we mean by that. Part one. You know, one of the things that we think about uh, when we do these part one conversations is the fact that your dad's going to hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Generally, because uh, these are some of the dumbest conversations that we ever have. Um, (laughs) And have been having since our teen years. (laughs) But they mean something to us. Yes, Yes. And and we run this thing. Yeah, that's honest, right. right? <laughs> this is we we get we make the rules. <laughs> <laughs> um and since uh this is a conversation that we've been having for decades. A I, real I can, conversation, yep, by the way. I can tell you that when it originated, of course, that you know, we weren't drinking anything or it, there was nothing that went into this but just just pure youthful idiocy. Um and and the question was which artists take their wallet on stage. <laughs> And I'll give you a little context for where this conversation uh, came from. Um, if you're a musician or, you know, you, you play in a band or something like that, you often have to make little decisions like that. Like, hey, am I going to am I going to leave my wallet in my back pocket when I go out and play? Uh, it kind of feels <laughs> am, am, or am I going to put on some special like show pants? <laughs> right. Uh, Designated that, show pants. Yeah. Like my shiny pants or the pants that have more pockets or less pockets <laughs> than my usual day to day pants. Or am I just did I just wear these pants all day? And then it's like, oh. Time to play. You right. Know? So it, it, it's sort of another way of just saying who's, you know, kind of an everyman. Right. Or or who pretends to be an everyman. See, there's a difference. <laughs> um, so I don't have a list. Uh, nor, nor do of I. Of people that take their wallet on stage. Um, it's not something that can that can be fully confined to a list or defined. But it's, it feels innate. It's, and, and yeah. I, I'll give you just a really easy, just a really easy juxtaposition of a couple guys, one that definitely takes his wallet on stage and one that definitely doesn't. Bruce Springsteen takes his wallet on stage. Definitely. Bruce Springsteen has just got his jeans on. Yeah. He's hanging out with, with the family, who else? And he just kind of rolls out in those jeans and he plays. Yeah. Seal does not take his wallet on stage. <laughs> No. Seal has show pants. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, I think that what this uh, debate really gets to the heart of is kind of like the working man sort of, you know, there's a lot of musicians that, that, I mean, Bruce is a good example. He's sort of a hero of the working man. Right. You know, and you feel like those type of guys, like Merle Haggard definitely took his wallet totally. on stage, you know. And and I think that uh, that, that Bob Seger is a guy 
who, you know, you got a lot of kind of like blue collar working man songs, yeah. but there's something about Bob Seger that seems like more legit. Like this guy's like, he's real deal. You know, it's not contrived. I don't think Seeger carries a wallet. I think he walks on stage with a handful of cash in his front <laughs> pocket. I bet you can hear change jingling when Bob Seeger crosses the stage. That's my guess. Meanwhile, Mellencamp hands his slimline wallet to somebody before yeah. he comes out on stage. That yeah. would be my guess. I don't he doesn't he doesn't have a wallet either. He has someone to handle those things. <laughs> um I'm gonna guess that Sting does not carry his wallet on stage. No. No. Sting uh, probably has like six pence in a little <laughs> pouch, like a little velvet pouch that he carries. Pence. Or like some pieces of silver <laughs> that he barters with. He keeps them in his beard. I think all the guys in Leonard Skinner totally. definitely carried their wallets on stage. No question. Uh, yep. You know, um, I would imagine Bruno Mars does not. No, Bruno Mars. Uh, I would agree with I mean, that. And and you know what? I'd be disappointed if he did. Yeah. I kind of want Bruno Mars to have show pants. I I think possibly you've tapped into something here though that like is the art of the guy who carries his wallet on stage is that a dying, a dying form because. You know what? What musical genres today that are successful seem to be wallet wallet on stage guys? Maybe maybe right. some metal guys. Yeah, but, but definitely not the glam. You know, you can't put a wallet in spandex. I think James Hetfield from Metallica has like a bandana hanging from his back pocket. Now I think it's very <laughs> well placed. Right, the bandana. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have the same wallet that he's always had, and it's got a rubber band or two around it. Probably. Now <laughs> Apple Pay is killing the wallet. In general. So, I mean, yes, we are straying away from the wallet on stage because we're straying away from the wallet. Right, um, right. But, dude, tell me Pete Townsend doesn't carry his wallet on stage. <laughs> I saw Pete Townsend play at Nokia Theater, and that guy had, like, a shirt that kept just coming up and showing his belly when he would right. do his windmill. And I was like, that guy's had that shirt on all day. <laughs> right. there's, there's no question that he didn't change. It was just like a burgundy polo. Right. But Pete Townsend doesn't carry his wallet on stage because he's the working man. He he carries his wallet on stage because he is the the quintessential dad. Yeah, totally. And he super doesn't care. Like no. the Who comes out and tunes. Right. Like, <laughs> now they've been playing for fifty hundred years, and they still come out. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, the Who, and he's like, ding, ding. He, he tunes, which is amazing. I thought it was totally. super cool. So you know, this is this is the the conversation that we have returned to over and over over the last uh, number of decades that we've yeah. known one another. And uh, I bet right now everyone is sitting there thinking, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> but you watch yourself. In a couple of days, you're going to be thinking about. You're going to see a video. You're going to see something on YouTube. An artist you like. You're going to wonder if they got their wallet on stage yep. or not. And if it's Adele, I'm guessing no, no. Well, then you get into a whole purse situation, right? Which, by the way, on a completely unrelated note, I have to tell this story. When it comes to, when it comes to carrying your possessions on stage, I once saw Aretha Franklin at the Hollywood Bowl. Now, they announced her, and she came out onto the stage with her purse, <laughs> and she put it down by the piano. And then when she was done, she took her purse, she left the stage, she got an encore, she came back out, put the purse back. Did another song. That is that is not trusting that there is anyone in say, your organization. You don't trust anyone <laughs> that, that can watch your purse, or you just think you might need gum. <laughs> Part two. 
Dennis McCoskey is best known for writing Maniac, which was included on the Flashdance soundtrack and became a number one pop single that earned Golden Globe, Academy Award, and Grammy nominations. McCoskey took home a Grammy Award for Best Album of Original Score for a Motion Picture and continued to find success for the next decade with Billboard charting singles recorded by pop, R&B, and adult contemporary artists such as Boz Skaggs, Smokey Robinson, Al Jarreau, Eddie Money, Chicago, and James Ingram. Dennis eventually relocated to Nashville, where he landed a top 10 country hit with Leanne Rimes' recording of I Need You, before going on to hit number one with Keith Urban's version of You'll Think of Me. Other artists who've hit the country charts with his songs include Clay Aiken, Reba McIntyre, Lone Star, Martina McBride, and David Nail, who hit the top 10 with Red Light. The list of additional performers who've recorded Dennis's songs includes Diana Ross, Sergio Mendez, Teddy Pendergrass, Johnny Gill, George Benson, Cool and the Gang, Laura Branigan, Sheena Easton, CeCe Winans, Joe Cocker, Rascal Flatts, and the cast of the hit television show Nashville. Dennis, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, it's great to have you here with us, and uh, you know, you, you're a, a guy who's in Nashville now, but you were raised in Philadelphia, which, in addition to being just a very cool town, is actually one of the few cities that has its own quote-unquote sound. You know, we, we hear about the Philly sound, and you think of Gamble and Huff, and the Spinners, and the OJs, that whole thing. Um, what kind of music were you into um, when you were growing up, and was that whole Philly sound thing kind of part of your uh, development as you you know, sort of sharpens your own instincts as a, as a songwriter and musician. Yeah, you couldn't help but be hear the sound of Philadelphia where I grew up because it was everywhere. And even today when you go back there, those songs are still playing. Um, I grew up listening to everything. Um, one of my best friends was always the taste master for me, and he would say on a Thursday night, hey, let's go to Electric Factory and, um, and I'd say, who, who's playing? He says, a guitar player. And I'd say, does he have a keyboard player? Because I was an organ player. And he'd say, no. But I'd go anyway, and it was Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Or it was, <laughs> I saw the first, my first concert was, I went to go see Herman's Hermits. And, and the Who opened up for them. And by the time Herman's Hermits came on, it was like losing your musical virginity. <laughs> um, right. So... But soul music was a big part of us growing up. Uh, we listened to the intruders, the Delphonics, and later on, it was wonderful for me to produce Teddy Pendergrass and write wow. with him and write for him and the spinners and um, a lot of the Philadelphia sound. And actually, my one of my biggest compliments was I was in the studio with Gamble and Huff, and and I was producing Teddy, and Barry White was also there, and... Um, Barry White said to Teddy, boy, Gamble, um, Gamble could really play piano. And, uh, and he said, no, it's a, it's a, it's a boy kid. Wow. <laughs> and that was one of my biggest compliments. That's awesome. Up. Nice. But anyway, I love Philadelphia. I love the sound of it. But we grew up, uh, you know, playing high school. When we were in grade school, we played high school. When we were in high school, we played co- um, colleges. And when we were colleges, we played clubs. And then I moved out to mm. L.A. Yeah, you know, and the, the name Michael Cimbello is one that plays pretty strongly into the eventual launch of your career, but he's somebody that you met during those early days in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, we were together from 12, we had a band together for 12 to 16, Okay, and, uh, and we worked every weekend, and I remember 
Um, John Oates would have a band playing the fraternities, and we would stagger our sets so we could go hear him. And um, wow. and then when he turned 16, he left the band and joined Stevie Wonder's band. Wow. And At 16? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, his first gig was at the Spectrum, um, opening up, uh, playing with Stevie, and they didn't have rehearsal, so he had to kind of figure out what <laughs> songs and what keys and what guitar part. Wow. What, what year was that? I graduated in 71, and I was, I was a year older than him. Um, it was 71 or 70. Wow. I think it was 71. Man. So it's like Talking Book era, Intervisions era. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it was right after, it was right after Intervisions. So you, you, know, you went on to Temple University to study music, and, and while you're studying there, you've got a buddy who's down the road playing in Stevie Wonder's band. Did, did you kind of just want to hurry up and, and get out there and get a job like that? Or how did it feel to kind of have to buckle down and study at that point? Were you just wishing you were out on the road somewhere? Um, no, not, not really. It's, it's because I really wanted to learn. I really loved uh, composition and theory, and I really wanted to get a basis. Uh, for and I was also studying jazz at the same time, and you know Michael left because he had a gig. Yeah. I w- didn't know if I was ready to go get a gig yet. Mm. Um, to be honest, Michael was always uh, um, musically just completely more advanced than I was. Mm. Um, so it was really fun to have the the bandmates that we have: Joey Alfonso on drums and Vinnie Warsaw. They were all great musicians. And um, so we kept pushing each other. And so when he uh, joined Stevie's band, I just wanted to make sure that I had enough skill set so that it would last me my whole life. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I did. And then when I graduated college, I met my wife uh, um, at college, and she was a uh, flute major, and I was a composition and theory major. And then when we uh, graduated, uh, we lived in town for a year, and then we moved to L.A. in 79. When you moved out to L.A., my understanding is that it wasn't necessarily to to write songs so much as to pursue a career as a um, session musician. Were you actually um, actively writing at that point, or were you more focused on, on being a musician and the writing kind of, kind of came later, or how did that all sort of um, unfold for you? In all honesty, at first I wanted to be a jazz musician and go to New York, and then I really took... Uh, stock of that, and I really wasn't, didn't feel like I was qualified to do that at this point, mm. and I loved being, uh, I loved music, and I loved being in the studio, so I thought I would be a, a studio musician, yeah. and, um, but the first song that I wrote um, became a hit for Dinah Ross, and it kind of changed everything. Mm. Yeah, tell us how that happened, because I understand that that song was not originally written with Diana Ross in mind. We're talking about uh, Mirror Mirror, which was a part of her 1981 Why Do Fools Fall in Love album. That was a huge hit for her, top 10 on multiple charts, and, and you were kind of off to the races at that point. So that, tell us kind of the journey of that song. Well, Michael and I, when I moved out to L.A. again, Michael and I just kind of picked up like we never left off, and uh, that was the first song that I showed him. I had the, uh, a lot of the music for it, and um, we just got together and 
wrote it, we were trying to get Michael a deal. Mm. So we were looking at everything that we wrote together for him. And, uh, and that was sent out for him to get a record deal. And I believe it was Jay Landers who heard it and then got it to Diana Ross. Mm. And did, I don't think Jay was ever credited, so a big shout-out to Jay. Did she have to uh, change any lyrics? Like, what, was it sort of written with a male artist in mind, or was there anything that she did to kind of make it, uh, you know, more female-specific, or did it just fit right away? It fit right away. There uh, uh, was a line that she'd, like, be changed called, uh, uh, at one point it has a line in there about getting older, and uh, <laughs> she, she wasn't sure if she wanted that in there. But we, Diana uh, Ross does not get older. <laughs> right. But the song is basically about Dorian Gray, so there's no getting around that. <laughs> so, so you said that was actually the, did you say that was the first song you actually wrote? Or just well, the yes, first I wrote one, one. Well, it's the first song I actually co-wrote. I wrote one by, by myself um, right before I left Philadelphia that is very Spinners-like. Because right. uh, my friend Vinny uh, was an engineer at Sigma, and he got me free time. And so that was really fun. And then Mirror Mirror was the first song I ever co-wrote. Wow. Man, <laughs> that is amazing. Um, well, you know, you started to see some things happen in your writing career at that time. And uh, I understand that you and Michael wrote the theme song to the movie Summer Lovers, which was one that Michael actually performed. But, of course, it was another movie song that kind of really put things into high gear for you guys. And everyone remembers the movie Flashdance and... and that iconic song, Maniac. You guys wrote it, Michael sang it, went to number one, nominated for an Oscar, a Golden Globe, two Grammys. I mean, talk about a huge hit. Tell us the, the story of, of how all that unfolded. We had a one-bedroom apartment, and um, it, we were just about to have um, Jesse, our first son. And so it, our one bedroom was our bedroom. It was the music room, and it was the nursery. Hmm. And I was watching television, and they had found Gacy in all these bodies in someone's yard, and I just wrote down on a piece of paper, excuse me, um, he's a maniac, he just moved next door, he'll kill your cat and nail it to the floor, he'll <laughs> rape your mother and screw your wife, he's a maniac. <laughs> and, Jeez. And, and so I went into uh, the other room and asked Leslie, I said, what do you think of this title and the lyric? And she said, seriously, get some help. Just <laughs> And so I went over to Michael's house the next night and told him the idea. And uh, he said to me, hit, your, hit the weirdest chord you know. Now, uh, we're, um, just for you music buffs, uh, I was, I'm a Bill Evans fan. Mm -hmm, and right. Bill Evans, if he was in the key of F, he would go to, uh, for your for your turnaround, he'd go to two minor to five, and then instead of going to one to end the song, he would go to a flat seven, minor six, nine. So this is what it would sound like. So it would be like... And instead of going here, he would go... 
<laughs> and um, Michael asked me to hit the weirdest chord I knew. Right. And it, that was the chord. And we wrote that song in about 15 minutes because we had the life experiences of growing up. So we didn't even realize it. But the, the melody was, you know, almost similar to Bally High. Just a few. Mm. So anyway. You don't have to put my voice on this show. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so we did that, and then the next day, Phil Ramone was going to be coming over, and um, who's a legendary Hmm. producer, engineer, and uh, we wanted to make him laugh. So we (laughs) stayed up all night and and really cut the what was and is the record um, that night, and. and that, and then he and he came over the next day and said, you know, um, I'm working on this little movie, Flashdance, and if you change the lyric to what you already have to the script, um, you know, I I might be able to get this in the movie, wow. and uh, that's what we did. Wow, man! And I, I understand. I was reading that. Uh, that you guys did some pretty innovative programming on that song. Uh, I remember reading that you guys used something called the Lin Electronics LM1, uh, the first drum machine that had samples of real instruments. Is that true? Am I right about that? Yes, it was actually it wasn't the LM1. It was the it was the Lin drum. It had just come out. We had the LM1, ah. but it couldn't be. We couldn't get it to chase the MIDI time code. So um, we yeah that that was one of the first. Uh, first electronic songs and we had uh samples on that and then we you could only go through it one time and then lay down the drums you couldn't go back and do it and so we did that and then the rest of it i played uh i played all the keyboards and michael played the solo and um that was you know that was a little tough because you had to be exact and uh I remember doing the bass going doom 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 punch man doom 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 doom. So it took a it took a minute, but uh, we got it. I never thought I'd say this sentence in my life, but whenever uh, I hear Maniac from now on, I'm going to think of Bill Evans. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's amazing. Uh, I love that. Well, the next couple of years brought singles with R and B artists like Johnny Gill of New Edition. You had a top forty hit with Boz Skaggs called "Heart of Mine" in '88. Were artists and labels beginning to seek you out now uh, based on the success that you'd had? Uh, no, not really. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to, be, uh, to be honest, I mean, what was, what was happening is um, the songs that I wrote that, that did uh, garner those, that kind of interest, um, I got to produce. Okay. Because um, like Maniac, they couldn't redo it um, uh, exactly. And you know how it is. Sometimes if you get the demo right... The difference between a demo and a record is a couple of overdubs and a yeah. an incredible mix. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was really great. But I have a um, a lot of the the A and R staff, not necessarily, but but the artists started uh, that I started working with. Uh, I've always had great relationships and been so fortunate in writing with so many great artists, and that's been just wonderful. I mean, it's 
I can't tell you how much fun that is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, throughout the rest of the 80s, I mean, you were writing, producing, um, having more singles with artists like Kenny G and Smokey Robinson, Al Jarreau, Eddie Money, mm-hmm. Laura Branigan. Um, but then in the mid-90s, you moved to uh, Nashville, which is obviously kind of a, a, a songwriter town, but I think people think of it in a, in a very different lane than the, than the sort of success you've been having up to that point. Um, why that, uh, that change at that point? Well, um, there were several reasons. It's just aligned. Uh, the biggest uh, was when the earthquake in Northridge hit in 94, it totaled my house. Wow. So um, that was kind of the main impetus. And, and then uh, I got an offer to, to have a publishing deal in Nashville that um, was equivalent to what I was getting in L.A. Mm, right. um, so, and my mom had already moved from back from Philadelphia to her hometown where I spent every summer to Philadelphia, Mississippi. Oh. Which is crazy. Really? It's another story altogether. <laughs> hometown of Marty Stewart. Yes. Random absolutely. fact. <laughs> yep, and I spent every summer down there. That is, that's, that's very good. That is uh, well, yeah, if you were able to get the same publishing deal in Nashville, uh, particularly at that time, I would imagine the cost of living was um, noticeably different. Absolutely. Um, and, and plus, you know, I love the community here. I was already doing some production, and my kids were in private school, and it was been great to, to get them in, you know, in the public school. And yeah. one of mine stayed in private, and one went to public. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, hey, I can get a lot cheaper house, send uh, one of my kids to a free school, and I still make the same amount of money. This is sounding pretty good. And the likelihood of this house falling is less. <laughs> right, exactly. And I also wanted to. Uh, the culture here and the writing level, I just wanted to be there. I wanted yeah. to be around great writers. Yeah. Had you um, been writing country stuff up to that point, or was it when you moved to Nashville that you really kind of got into that? It wasn't until years later, because really I kept, I worked with a lot of the American idols, and I still did a lot of work in L.A. and film and TV, and... Um, and I was producing and writing with a lot of the Christian artists, with C.C. Winan and Anointed, and um, I produced Craig, uh, films Craig and Dean, and, and a, a lot of the, uh, the, um, those artists. And um, so even when I started to have success here, they were really more pop songs than they were country songs. Mm. So I didn't want to... Growing up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and spending every summer of my... Uh, grandmother's farm in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I didn't want to come in with guns blazing, so okay, I'm a country writer because it's it's a process and it's a yeah. lyric understanding. It's, yeah. So I always try to base everything that I do on an emotional, musical point of view, and then to me, the genres are lyrically they're musically divided too. But lyrically, you really have to know what you're talking about in the genre that you're talking about. It. Sure. You know, we, we tend to look at, at careers almost like highlight reels, and, and we look at these sort of like bullet markers of like chart positions, and, and we see a, a lot of these things in the 80s, and we certainly, in the 2000s, there's just a, a, a giant um, rush of success for you there. So, you know, some of the things that were going on in the 90s, you mentioned film and TV and some things that may not have been quite as high profile. How do you sort of characterize that period in your career? Um, and, you know, you know how, how is it feeling at that point? Um, well, it, it's, 
it's never really changed. I work a lot in film and TV, always, and uh, then and still do. Uh, I have one of my companies. We're in 320 TV shows a year, wow. and Man. the uh, and um, I do a lot of work for you know trailers, and I just love it from an from a symphonic point of view and for writing songs that have different forms. So um, I just wrote something for the show Nashville. I I just wrote um, the Quantico uh, theme last year. So uh, the promotional theme. Um, So, you know, to me, it's all great music. I mean, it's all music. If it's not on the charts and it touches somebody and I get to do it and and put it into a film, um, it, it's it's all the same to me. I yeah. mean, of course, I love big hits. I mean, who doesn't? Um, but it's it's not about that. I right. mean, it's uh, it's just about being able to create. Yeah, yeah. Well, being able to create and then uh, also getting the huge hit, of course, is the cherry on top. And and I'm absolutely, thi- I'm thinking I would do that every day. By <laughs> the way. <laughs> right, right. That's the that's the ultimate uh, hope and. Um, you know, one of those very nice cherries on top was in the year 2000. Leanne Rimes uh, had a huge hit with I Need You. That was a song that was all over the radio, spent 25 weeks in the Hot 100. It was top 10, country and pop. Um, And, you know, people might not actually remember this, but that song wasn't necessarily uh, written for Leanne Rimes so much as it was actually written for a uh, miniseries about Jesus. Tell us how that all came about. Okay, uh, and I'm not overtly proud of this story, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but... Uh, my friend Ty Lacey and I, uh, who I've written and st- still write with a lot, uh, wrote that, and I was playing it up in my studio, and Leslie, my wife, said, you know what, you should go play that for Faith Hill, That's, uh, that sounds like a hit to me. And she really doesn't say that until, unless she really feels it. She's got a great track record. So yeah. I went and played it for A&R, uh, for Faith, and um, they just weren't feeling it that much, and mm. so I went over to herb records and asked to see their a and r person and i was waiting in the in the off in the office and uh i was reading a variety magazine and i noticed that kevin costner was doing a movie called for the love of the game so when i went into the a and r person i said um hey i want to play you a song and i'm working on this movie for the love of the game with kevin costner and I need to find a singer and an artist right away, <laughs> within 24 hours. And so I played it, and then I get a call from Mike Kerb uh, later on that day or, or the next day around that time. And he says, listen, if, if you'll let us cut it with Leanne Rimes, I will uh, put it in this miniseries. And uh, I'll put it on her at record, and I'll also make it a dance remix and put it out. Wow. And I, I said, okay. You're like, uh, l- let me go back to Kevin Costner and ask. <laughs> I never have done that since and, or, or before. But I was so tired of the gatekeepers. Yeah, Because right. I really did feel like this was a hit. Yeah. And I don't feel that often, and I don't do that 
Um, I don't go in with those kind of stories because you can't, and I would never do that. But I was so angry that day that <laughs> I, I thought, okay, I know this is a hit if somebody does it. And, right. um, that's amazing. They, they did. That's amazing. That's, that's pushing all your chips in on that song. I love it. And you were right. You were right. I go all in. Yes, I went all in. You're right. Well, 2003 brought you another huge hit with You'll Think of Me, a song you wrote with Daryl Brown and Ty Lacey that went to number one on the country chart and was even in the top 25 on the pop charts. And that song contains one of my favorite lyrics. Take your cat and leave my sweater because we have nothing left to weather. Take your records, take your freedom, take your memories, I don't need them. Take your space and take your reasons, but you'll think of me. Take your cat and leave my sweater Cause we have nothing left to weather In fact, I feel a whole lot better But you think of me, you think of me Tell us about that song and who gets the credit for that brilliant line. That is so Ty Lacey. Man. <laughs> that, is, that is Ty. Ty really, um, Daryl, uh, Ty and I were scheduled to write and Daryl was uh, uh, going to come over and we were going to go to dinner. And uh, we got to a late start, and uh, Ty had broken up with someone, and that was his kind of story, and um, that was his line. Wow. Uh, and I love that line, and I actually had a publisher say, you should change that line, and I thought to myself, okay, this is a hit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> if the expert says change it, you know you're on to something. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tend to walk away from songs, and I won't always remember the title, honestly. But if there's a lyric that jumps out like that to me, I, I, I'll go to somebody and say, Hey, dude, have you heard this song? It says this thing about the cat and the sweater, you know? Because sometimes a line like that, you know, can be, uh, you know, almost like a, a total touch point for remembering the song and, and the way it resonates with people. Absolutely. I've had so many people come up to me and go, Hey, um, would you play that cat and sweater song? <laughs> You might have to add the cat in the sweater in parentheses after the official title, you know. Just. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and some of these songs, you know, in looking back, I mean, it's interesting when you mentioned that about uh, I Need You and, and you mentioned Faith Hill, and I think, oh, yeah, that, that would have worked. That totally would have worked for Faith. And, well, a, a song like You'll Think of Me, even though Keith wasn't a writer on it, that feels really like a Keith Urban song to me. What do you think, you know, is the difference there? Well, um, if if I ever play you the demo, it sounds more like Peter Gabriel, the track, <laughs> and even the way that, and even the way that that um, Ty sang it, it's um, it, it's completely different. And what was so uh, brilliant about it is when when Daryl um, introduced that song to Keith, he didn't play him the demo. Hmm. He he showed him the chords and the feel. And and Keith um, really kind of made it his own. So that was an anomaly of usually how it happens. But mm. Keith organically played it like... I mean, of course, it was the same structure and the same chords and it had the same pad, it had the same drums, but the way it was approached from the acoustic guitar part was different. Yeah. And the track was actually very similar, but when Keith put his vocal on it, it just changed everything so I, I can't and Dan Huff did a, uh, an incredible record on it so I give all those guys major props it's amazing how 
what it takes to to have a hit record, how everybody changes it a little bit right. and it just makes it their own. Right. When you talk about even the way of presenting a song to an artist, I mean, that's really interesting. There's there's a lot of psychology that goes into the way we present songs to artists, the way we present them mm-hmm. to A&R, the way we, you know, show them to publishers. You know, sometimes I'm very careful about what time I send an email, you know, just even right. things like that. But, I, you know, the way you describe that, having Keith sit down and play it, then, you know, he's finding himself in the middle of the song rather than just singing over the top of it like he's been laid on top of it. And that, that seems like a... Uh, kind of a an important psychological factor, finding yourself in the center of a song. Yes, it it doesn't usually work like that, but um, I remember when uh, Boss Gags came over to the house with Heart of Mine, and Bobby Caldwell was singing it, and uh, Bobby's an, uh, an amazing singer, and Boz started, I could see him starting to shrink in the background. Mm. What a sweet man, and what a gentleman. And, and I've seen that look before with artists where the person that sings the demo is so good they just become intimidated and go well you know that song really that's more of a Bobby Caldwell song then and uh, I remember um, going into my kitchen and calling the studio and said to Bobby Bobby if you ever sung flat before this is the time to do it I can see we're losing Boz and and uh, and he did an amazing job but it can work the other way around for you as well but there's nothing like that organic build when an artist can build it from the beginning and take the bones of the song yeah. and and make it his own. And Keith really did that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were certainly plenty more high points in the next few years, including country singles for Reba McIntyre, Leanne Rhymes, uh, and Lone Star. But then you also had hits with two American Idol finalists, um, Clay Aiken's I Will Carry You and Kimberly Locke's Change, which broke the top ten in multiple formats. kind of balancing that in terms of, you know, being a a writer in the Nashville country community, but also kind of the Los Angeles pop community at the same time? Um, Well, I, you know, kept an apartment in L.A., and and I would go back and uh, write. And um, My friend Ty Lacey was living out there, so um, I would go back and write with other people, and um, I was signed with EMI, and... uh, uh, you know, I would go to Sweden, and uh, I still do, and go to London, and, and write in different genres all over the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I still do that and, and really enjoy it. Yeah. I actually feel like you, you're one of the few guys who is able to maintain a, a, a total credibility in both of those spheres, because I think sometimes you'll see Nashville you know, country writers sort of you know, raise an eyebrow at what they consider an L.A. writer. Um, or vice versa, but you know, you seem to have had the ability to, you know, to manage, um, you know, both of those worlds in terms of credibility. Uh, do you think <laughs> it's an interesting question for you to have to answer? Um, do you think those things uh, are a credit to musicality, or do they have a lot to do with with the way you interact with people and and put them at ease? My theory is, uh, I, I think that you're correct on both levels. I think that my theory in music, uh, like I stated before, is I try to touch 
I try to emote, and so that's a general thing that happens in every genre. And, and, I'm, and I also am sensitive to what the melody changes are in the different genres mm. and, and the lyrical content. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that the way that I was brought up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, being, uh, playing every single kind of music that was around, um, uh, between the Temptations to Queen, from Queen, and then spending every summer in Mississippi uh, listening to that kind of music and being with all of my cousins on a farm, mm. the adaptability that I got both musically and socially, the dichotomy of that couldn't be further away from one another. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I think I was 11 years old when the um, FBI came up uh, on the front porch of my grandmother's farm looking for those three civil rights, uh, you know, for voting registration. Yeah, so wow. that happened all down there. So um, I was through a, a lot of that, and um, it instilled on me uh, just the adaptability of people are people, no matter yeah. where you are. But yeah. you can't rush in and just pretend like you know everything. Right. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't work like it's that. It's a balance, man. I agree. Well, Nashville, of course, you know, continued to be great for you, um, bringing I Just Call You Mine, uh, a top 20 country hit from Martina McBride in 2009, and um, then came Red Light, which uh, David Nail took to the top 10 that same year. At a red light in the sunshine on a Sunday hear a little bit about that song well i wrote that with jonathan singleton and melissa pierce and um melissa had the title and we were you know just talking about what ha- what could happen at a red light and you know, somebody could of course get in an accident somebody could get married and just find somebody and we chose of course being songwriters um that it would be a breakup song yeah and uh Again, what's great is um, that was a real, a real collaboration. Jonathan, is, as anybody knows here, is an amazing writer and singer. And um, Melissa Pierce is awesome and has done um, great stuff since, and uh, will go on to do a lot of great stuff. And um, it, it was just a, it was a story song. Um, and, you know, David Nail... Uh, recorded it, and uh, I kept on thinking, okay, this isn't going to go because it would move up and then drop down and move up and then drop down. And right. it actually took, I can't remember how many weeks it took to get to where it got, but I think it was about a year. Which is exactly what you want at the end of the day, of course, a, a slow climb. There's nothing better than that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, he, and he killed it vocally, too. What a great singer. You know, you, you, you're mentioning these writers, um, these great writers you've worked with, and you know, we can look through your career, and there's some, some fantastic co-writers and collaborators, and you know, then you've produced guys like Teddy Pendergrass, but writing with Daryl Brown and Ty Lacey, um, people like Craig Weissman, even Desmond Child, Lindy Robbins, our mutual friend Jess Cates. Love Jess. Jess is such a great guy. Um, but then I remember a day back in the early 2000s when you agreed to write with me, and I was a relatively unproven young writer. I would love to know your philosophy of collaboration. I mean, in a lot of ways, try to, to get to the heart of, of why you would choose to write with a young writer 
um, who didn't have a lot to his name at that point. And what, what kind of drives you in the collaborative decisions that you make? Um, I try to look for somebody that has a point of view, hmm. uh, m- musically or lyrically. I just I, I like the point of it. I do love working with younger, newer writers because they don't know what the rules are yet. Hmm. And if they do have a point of view, it can be an amazing thing because I do know the rules and I love breaking them. And um, and that's what's kind of led me into developing the artist that I've, uh, what I'm doing a lot now. Um, so I, you know, where else are you going to find great new talent? I mean, I, I have had the fortune of writing with older writers my age, younger writers, and then it's like different classes of, of writers in grade school, middle school, college, you know, so um, I enjoy writing with new writers because you never know what you're going to come up with. Yeah. And um, I've made some great friendships and, and seen some writers. I've written with Ryan Tedder uh, before he had his thing going. The, the list goes on and on right. um, of, of people that I've had the fortune to write with before they, they hit, and we're still friends. So, the, the, A guy like Ryan Tedder, I mean, who, you know, for, for people that may not recognize that name, the, you know, the mastermind behind One Republic, and then has worked with everyone from Beyonce to Kelly Clarkson to U2 on the most last couple records. Did you see uh, in him uh, what was coming? Did you see that talent? I saw a focus that was really amazing in a talent. Yeah, I did, actually. I, 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 and it wasn't very long afterwards that he... Uh, he had his first single. Hmm. Um, yeah, he, he, he with that kind of a voice too. He had everything going for him. Yeah, we, you know, we we talk about um, you know the the technology you guys were using all the way back to a song like Maniac um, and you know kind of the innovations in those times. And then you just mentioned recently the changes in melody over the decades, and and you really have seen a tremendous amount of change um, from city to city and from era to era, year to year. What has changed? the most about the process of songwriting over the last couple of decades. Um, we could talk about the, the financial changes in it, you know, ad nauseum, but as far as the process of songwriting, what have you seen change and how do you stay current while kind of maintaining the elements of the process that, that make you comfortable? That's a great question. That really is. Um, so the pro- everything has changed. Nothing has changed. Hmm. Um, the pro- <laughs> The process is the same, you know, because I got into it right before the technology uh, and the machines hit, and that I, at the beginning of my career, that's when all the machines hit. Um, And um, so I kind of grew up before that, old school, and then it got new school. And so to me, I try to combine both of them. If if, uh, a lot of times now I'll write top line where I'll write the lyric and the melody or I'll write the melody or I'll write, help write the lyric and I won't play anything. I'll let um, the programmers um, do that. And, um, and so that kind of frees me up from my harmonic structure. Mm. But if I do need to play, I can just go in and play. So I try to write in different combinations out of my comfort zone. That way I don't lead everything. Right. Well, that, that, that makes sense because that, that also puts you in a position to learn and to receive and to walk away from a session with, you know, uh, some new perspectives because you've let somebody else steer right. a bit. Uh, yeah. Right. Now, in today's music, the, the harmonic structure is there, but it's taken away and, and it's, it, you don't hear chords. Right. So um, 
that in itself is a big, that's a big chasm right there, the difference. Yeah. It's still the same chords, but they're not played the same way. Yeah, chords almost seem like they're represented in, in vocal melodies now. You could almost just have a bass yeah. line and a, and a beat, and then you have to listen to a few bars of the vocal to tell if whether it's major or minor even. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's still appealing to the same sensibility in the ear. Absolutely. And I think because just like in every other entertainment and movies, you can figure out the plot pretty quickly now. So I, I think for um, people's ears now, they're, so, they're sophisticated enough to not need that support. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you, I can attest that you are certainly a man that knows your harmonics. I remember coming over to your place and I, I went over to your roads and was playing a little something. And then you came over and said, what if we tried this? And I looked at whatever chord you were playing right then and I said, Oh, let's let Dennis play, <laughs> um, because you're a you're a fantastic keyboard player. You're a fantastic producer. You all the elements of songwriting, I, I've I've seen them at work in you. Um, and even beyond that, I, I've never met a person that has a bad word to say about Dennis McCoskey. So um, I I want to thank you for your your graciousness and your talent, and um, and for spending some time with us today, sharing these stories over what's. Um, which is a really great career. Thank you. Thanks for calling me and, and uh, doing it. I love your show, and uh, um, I look forward to hearing this and all the other ones you do. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. <laughs>